0: This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producer's credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program, David C. Hendrickson, president of the John Quincy Adams Society, joins us to discuss his book, Freedom, Independence, Peace, John Quincy Adams and American Foreign Policy. Although Adams is often associated with American exceptionalism and the Monroe Doctrine, He also warned against military adventurism, famously arguing in an 1821 speech to the U.S. House of Representatives that America should not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. We'll discuss that as well as why David believes John Quincy Adams and his foreign policy thought should be reevaluated in our current tumultuous era. The latter portion of the discussion ends up taking an unexpected turn, with David giving his views on the Ukraine-Russia war, NATO, and Crimea. Note that this is not a debate podcast. And since the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, I've hosted a multitude of differing perspectives on the conflict. I'm constantly reassessing my own views on the issue and like hearing from a variety of voices. I don't censor those voices and I allow them to give their perspective. So if you find the latter portion of the conversation which focuses on the Ukraine-Russia issue a bit controversial, I apologize. It's a rather hot-button issue, and I think it stirs up a great deal of emotions. I myself have a bit of Ukrainian heritage, so it's a bit close to home for me as well. In any case, with all that being said, let's get right to it with David C. Hendrickson on his book Freedom, Independence, Peace John Quincy Adams and American Foreign Policy. Welcome to Parallax Views. David C. Hendrickson. President of the John Quincy Adams Society and author of the new book, I will hold it up right here, Freedom, Independence, and Peace, John Quincy Adams and American Foreign Policy. How are you doing today? Good. So, David, if you could, uh, before we get into the details of the book, maybe you could give a little bit of your background and the development of your own sort of thinking about issues related to foreign policy and international relations?
1: Well, I, uh, I've been primarily an American historian. I've written a number of books, some co-authored with Robert W. Tucker on the early period of American history. Uh, we did a book on called The Fall of the First British Empire. That was our first book together. And then a book called Empire of Liberty, The Statecraft of Thomas Jefferson, and a book called The Imperial Temptation, The New World Order and America's Purpose in the aftermath of the first Gulf War in 1991. And uh, my big project was a a kind of study of the development of American thought regarding international relation over the entire history. Uh, the, The first of that was uh, called Peace Pact, The Lost World of the American Founding, and then um, another book called Union Nation or Empire, uh, the American debate over international relations, which took the story up to the Second World War, and then a few years back, a book called Republic in Peril, um, uh, American Empire and the Liberal Tradition. Uh, Ideologically, I would say that on balance, I started out, when I in my nineteen, uh, when I was in my twenties, as something of a neoconservative, I I uh, read a lot of commentary in the public interest. Oh, really? Wow. I, yeah, I was never, uh, you know, I was never keen on their foreign policy stuff as such. Uh, you know, I was most attracted, you know, back in the uh, early nineteen seventies to figures like Nathan Glazer and Alexander Bickle and Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Charles Frankel and a whole series of figures that I really still look to and actually had a very moderate view of, uh, of, of public policy. Uh, you know, as I say, I was never attracted to the kind of Podoritz view of America's role in the world. I thought that his book on Vietnam in the late eight, 70s was uh, was absurd. But um, you know, I was something of a, uh, you know, I was certainly a believer in the American role in the world and um, was uh, very attached to the North Atlantic Treaty and to the alliance with Japan and saw the United States as a force for great stability. I think the first great break from that view uh, came with the first Gulf War, which I opposed. And uh, I felt that that was a profligate use of American power and uh, that we almost gloried in the uh, ability to squash this poor nation. And uh, from then on, I gradually turned against the uh, leading principles of of the American role, above all, as those were expressed by the second Bush administration and epitomized by Bush's second inaugural in 2005, which made it the mission of the United States in tyranny in the world. And um, I would say that my uh, uh, foreign policy outlook was, you know, deeply affected over time, almost by a process of osmosis from my deep engagement with reading the papers of uh, the founders and also the second generation, including John Quincy Adams. And uh I came to see in their overall outlook towards foreign affairs, as on much else, a great well of uh, of wisdom. And uh, it seemed to me that the United States, while invoking them, as Bush did in his second inaugural, had grossly and radically departed from some of the central ideas that uh, that they put forth. So um yeah, over the last uh, Twenty years since, uh, especially the uh, the Iraq War of two thousand three, I've come to be a very harsh critic of uh, of the American role and of American empire. I think it's uh, I think it's going to be an enterprise that will ultimately run the nation into the ground.
0: That's something I wanted to ask you about, and then we'll get more into John Quincy Adams, uh, and perhaps we can even tie it in. Uh, but. You know, uh, I think some people will hear the term American empire and say, well, you know, I wasn't brought up to think that America was an empire. What do you mean? Empires are bad. How could America be an empire? Um, you know, how do you explain to people that aren't familiar with the concept of America as an empire uh, why we could potentially describe the U.S. as such?
1: Well, uh, It's an empire in a lot of different respects and the kind of relationships that it has with all of the nations under its wing, which are essentially protectorates that, that, you know, get by by virtue of their dependence on American power. Uh, It's imperial in its aspirations. I mean, consider, for example, the, uh, the doctrine that the United States should have undisputed military superiority and to relish that as the uh, be-all and end-all of American policy. Well, anyone versed in the uh, the, the literature of, of the American founding or of the, uh, the broader currents of thought in the 18th century would see that as fundamentally a dangerous enterprise, as something bound to go awry, because the first rule of that political science of that earlier generation was that, unbounded power was inherently an evil, and inevitably subject to abuse. Uh, you know, it was funny, after the end of the Cold War, the uh, uh, everyone among the punditocracy was saying, not since Rome had <laughs> one state attained to such dominance over the international system. But of course, the whole Roman experience from the standpoint of this earlier political science was that it showed the dangers of this kind of unbounded power. And I think the, uh, so that would be the first point. The second point following from that has been that the United States has been incredibly cavalier in, the, uh, in its use of power. It's traduced you know, international law in every quarter of the globe. Uh, it now pretends to stand for sovereignty and territorial integrity in Ukraine. But of course, the, the whole hallmark of the war on terror for 20 years was that those old rules were irrelevant for, to the new challenges we faced. And hence, you had a whole series of American interventions, all of which went badly uh, in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, at all. And uh, I think that the uh, the destructive uh, uses of american power attest to a kind of imperial uh aspiration uh so those would be two points that i would uh you know that i would point to that underscore uh the uh rightful attribution to the united states of imperial ambitions now in terms of john quincy adams you're the president of the john quincy adams
0: society you have this book out and i wanted to start Uh, with a speech that John Quincy Adams gave as the Secretary of State to the U.S. House of Representatives on foreign policy on July Fourth, 1821, in which he had the famous line, uh, you know, where he says, but she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that speech and the famous in search of monsters to destroy line and what it means?
1: Well, uh, you know, Adams uh, wrote those words, as he put it uh, later, in reply to Edinburgh and Lexington, a Lexington standing for the Kentuckian Henry Clay, who had uh, called for the United States as Speaker of the House of Representatives to join the South American republics uh, in, in against Spain on behalf of their independence. And Edinburgh had called for a similar role, that the United States and Great Britain should join together to support a similar cause in Europe. So that was the immediate context in which Adams delivered his remarks, and he warned that were the United States to do so, that is to join with other nations in support of their independence and to take up all of these principles that were important for the American experiment, uh, and to do so across the world, it would inevitably have a corrupting effect on the nation's institutions, Our maxims would change from liberty to force, as he put it. And uh, I think that that's happened. Uh, the, the, there's a whole series of collateral consequences that follow from uh, the United States becoming a, a kind of national security state. Uh, one is that the military role becomes a greatly enhanced over the civil role. And one can see that in a whole variety of instances today. I mean, you know, it's kind of incredible that on any question of foreign policy, CNN and MSNBC will only invite former military officers as if they're the only ones that have a, should have a voice in this conversation. And uh, you have a kind of unbalancing of the appropriate roles of, of civilians in the military and foreign policy that follows from having a large military establishment. Uh, there's a whole series of collateral consequences that Adams did not foresee in the detail, but that he would surely recognize as being pernicious to liberty. Think of the rise of the surveillance state and uh, the aspiration of the American government to gobble up every piece of communication in the entire world so that it's searchable by America's spy agencies. I mean, that is such an obvious invitation to the abuse of power that uh, I think that, you know, those who uh, were, uh, you know, schooled in an older discipline which recognized the right of private communication among governments and public officials and private private citizens would be appalled at the kind of overreach that that represents. And you know, basically the, the Adams view reflects an understanding that war is intrinsically hostile to free institutions. It brings forth a set of reflexes, institutions, uh, etc, that are intrinsically hostile to a free society. So not
0: not to interrupt you, but I was going to say, would an example of that be, say, you know, during the war on terror, you know, the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, uh, we had a lot of, you know, uh, fears about, you know, uh, civil liberties being trampled upon by things like the Patriot Act. Would that be an example of how war uh, sort of curtails freedom?
1: Yes, a very good example. Sure. I mean, all of those measures were... uh... Or a direct response to uh, to 11 and of course, remarkably, they continue on. And so, once these powers are accumulated, they're seldom surrendered. And uh, you know that's another danger of having a foreign policy that is uh, you know perpetually threatening war uh, in a whole different uh, series of uh, of areas.
0: So then in terms of John Quincy Adams' thought on war and liberty, maybe we could delve more into how he thought about how the two are connected, uh, you know, how peace and liberty are connected and why he came to those conclusions.
1: Well, um, the uh, I think I've already basically covered the ground in that regard. I mean, let me fill it in though a little bit uh, from the standpoint, not so much of foreign policy, but of domestic policy, uh, let's go back 200 years to the uh, era or beyond to the era of the formation of the Constitution. One reads the Federalist as well as uh, of the, the letters and public speeches of John Quincy Adams. One sees an intense concern for the preservation of the Union. And in the absence of union, uh, Hamilton, Madison, Adams all thought uh, the North American continent would experience a kind of Europeanization. And as all of the institutions that had threatened liberty, standing armies, powerful executives, enormous debts and taxes, conscription uh, in Europe, as a consequence of their separation in independent states and their propensity towards war making, would uh, come to exist on the American continent because the, the states and the sections would form themselves into rival blocks that would then also be the subject to a great deal of European influence. And so, one finds in the Federalist, as well as in Adams' speeches, this sense that in the absence of union, the uh, all of the institutions of the power state, fundamentally threatening to liberty, would uh, entrench themselves in the North American continent. Now, that's an interesting point. Now, all of those observations apply to the American role in the world today. And, you know, they have, they apply to the consequences of being in a kind of state of perpetual uh war or quasi-war uh, but they were really first enunciated in the context of reflection on the need for uh, some kind of federal union uh, to uh, in late 18th century America. And all of those lessons were very closely held by the uh, by subsequent generations so, You know, you can kind of see that logic very clearly in what happens to any society that's at war. I mean, look at Ukraine and Russia today. Uh, Dissenters are ruthlessly published, rival political parties suppressed. uh, Everything has to be subordinated to the war effort. Uh, uh, Those kinds of societies are intrinsically hostile to uh, the ideal of a free society. And, uh, even free societies are subject to them, as the American experience with war repeatedly demonstrates. Whether one points to the suspension of habeas corpus during the Civil War by Lincoln, or the incarceration of Japanese Americans during the Second World War, or Operation Count Pro during the Vietnam War, in which the FBI, you know, uh, harassed uh, an endless number of dissenters. Uh, or today in terms of the rise of the surveillance state. So I think that those are standing dangers and uh, that the old uh, rule with regard to that is sound. And it's one more reason, in addition to many of the other reasons, that there is a fundamental obligation imposed upon nations to seek peace.
0: If we could, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to your interview with uh, my friend and colleague uh, Kelly Vlahos over at the Crashing the War Party podcast, and you had mentioned how uh, a lot of younger people, or maybe students you have had, uh, won't necessarily look back at the founding fathers, or they'll say, "Oh, you know, these old white guys. What can we really learn from them?" Uh, and I was wondering if you could unpack that a bit more. Like, what what can we learn from the founding fathers, and why would you say? Uh, that you know, young people should be interested in these figures like John Quincy Adams, uh, because I, I feel like there's people that think, uh, you know, okay, John Quincy Adams was from uh, another era; he would not understand our era of today. Uh, how do you respond to people that have that sort of uh, reaction, or will write off uh, the importance of the thinking of figures like John Quincy
1: Adams? Well, I suppose I would. Uh, put that point more broadly, not simply in terms of uh, Adams and, and the founders, but the entire heritage of past thought. Uh, I think it's a profound error for uh, any generation to look with contempt on the rich heritage of thought that has been bequeathed to us. And uh, we have the uh, opportunity to take advantage of a lot of very smart people thinking about uh, problems in politics that, in fact, are perennial, that don't go away and won't go away. I mean, that question of power being a, a classic illustration of that, you know, when in the future of humanity will we have to discard the lesson that absolute power corrupts absolutely? and uh, we think that we can invent everything on the fly i mean i just regard that as a uh, as a silly notion and we should not take our generation or any generation as being the repository of some kind of uh, you know great wisdom that can get by in the world without looking to the uh, with without looking to past thinkers so that's just kind of a disposition that i have that i think is born out in a whole variety of fields and and um that doesn't mean that we can't be critical of the past i mean past thinkers were always critical of their past in certain respects and, and so that's a continuous process of uh, of of indebtedness and creativity but the uh i think for the united states it's particularly important that we look to uh, uh look to past thinkers, I don't think this American experiment can hold together without a kind of rededication to basic propositions of the American experiment. And I I don't think it makes sense in the absence of that. We don't have a coherent ethnic identity. We're composed of a multitude of different peoples. And so we have to look to certain principles and ideals in order to find the glue that holds us together. And in the absence of that, I think, you know, we're fated to be a disunited people until the end of time, as Josiah Tucker prophesied in 1781. But, you know, there's innumerable instances of that, of of the, uh, of the benefit. I, I mean, I think just taking it on the merits What Adams said in that 1821 address, Uh, you know, would the assumption of a role in which the United States involved itself across the world on behalf of the independence and freedom of other peoples have a tendency to compromise domestic liberty at home? Well, that's, that's an intelligible proposition today as it was 200 years ago. And I think the answer is, yeah, it has. Uh, And so, to uh, to think about that or to have some knowledge of what transpired in the past and to think about the alternatives the previous generations posed uh, doesn't mean that we should be uh, slavishly devoted to whatever it was they said, but to be willing to engage in a kind of conversation with them uh, with regard to you know, a series of problems in politics that continually reoccur.
0: I want to get to uh, the very interesting chapter six of your book uh, entitled uh, The Foreign Policy of Independence and the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, It's interesting because, you know, you mentioned how soon after the launching of the Iraq war in 2003, uh, Adams was conscripted by historian John Lewis Gaddis into the camp of the neoconservatives, whose policy package back then was unilateralism, unilateralism, preemption, and hegemony. Uh, It's interesting. I know there's been a number of uh, writings on John Quincy Adams over the years that refer to him as the architect of American empire. I think there's even a book called John Quincy Adams and American Global Empire. Uh, So uh, how can we recast him, or not even recast him, but why do you view him... Uh, as maybe in opposition uh, to uh, the American empire and imperialism, whereas these other voices are trying to cast him as
1: a uh, forebearer to it. Yeah. Well, a couple of points in that regard. I think that the uh, Adams is kind of most interesting because he's the the forebearer of what might be called both establishment and dissenting traditions in American foreign policy. Uh, He was the architect of the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, his words were inserted in Monroe's presidential address of 1823. Uh, But at the same time, I think what the Monroe Doctrine became uh, under the auspices of subsequent presidents was very different from what Adams had in mind in, in writing those words initially in 1823. And those words warned against any further inter, European interposition on the American continents and said that the United States would regard that as threatening to its peace and safety. Now, but at the same time, Adams offered the South American republics a policy based on equal respect, reciprocity, mutual friendship, and there wasn't really a hint of domination in the words that he spoke. James Polk, uh, in in 1845 and 1846, when he went to war against Mexico, invoked the Monroe Doctrine and warned the European powers against any interposition in North America. But of course, Adams opposed the annexation of Texas and the Mexican War. Uh, So, he surely regarded that as a misappropriation. And again, in the uh, later part of the 19th century, the early 20th century, the United States intervened repeatedly in Latin America under the auspices of the Monroe Doctrine. But as the State Department Memorandum of, 18, of 1928, the Clark Memorandum put it, you know, that was a gross departure from what uh, the original intent of the Monroe Doctrine was. So, you know, any doctrine that exists over, you know, 200 years is subject to a lot of change, interpretation. And it's actually a frequent experience in political thought that words come to mean the opposite of what they once did. Uh, You know, federalism is like that. Does it mean decentralization or centralization? Well, it's meant all those things at various points. Liberalism is my favorite example. Uh, You know, it once meant toleration. It now means the lack thereof uh conservatism that's another example i mean who would have ascribed the bush policy who would have ever called that conservative this idea of you know overturning the world's government on behalf of some crazy uh, ideal of democracy some abstraction i mean if there's anything more antithetical to what edmund burke taught and what he understood by conservatism. It's difficult to imagine what that might be. So the, um, yeah, the Monroe Doctrine underwent a series of somersaults and came to mean a kind of right of unlimited American intervention in this hemisphere, but that was not Adams' original conception of it. Could you talk about his original conception of it just a, a little bit more in detail? Well, it was basically pinned to the concept of, of, of national independence. You know, he opposed he the intimations that the Holy Alliance was going to undertake an intervention in the Americas to restore Spanish authority. And uh and you know, there were differing opinions at the time as to how seriously that uh was to be considered. And uh it wasn't really very serious. And, you know, the first reason for that was that England had the naval power to block that enterprise. And, you know, English naval power was a much more significant factor in dissuading the European monarchies of the Holy Alliance, that is Austria-Hungary, Prussia, and Russia from undertaking such a rash project. Uh, I I don't it was never really uh, seriously uh, contemplated uh, by them. and um, But it was a warning that were the European powers to undertake such a, uh, a venture, uh, the United States, as I say, would regard it as hostile to its peace and safety. That didn't constitute a firm commitment that we would actually intervene. And Adams opposed the various proposals to issue a joint declaration with Great Britain uh, in opposition to those pretensions because he wanted a policy of independence from Britain. And the United States did have different interest in the South American republics from the British uh, that Adams wanted to emphasize. But my point is that the uh, it, it it it's not a claim at the outset. Of, of, of doing something in opposition to or in defiance of the, opinion, the opinions of the South American republics. So on the contrary, it was intended to demonstrate American solidarity with them on that point of national independence and oppose the right of the European powers to overturn their institutions so if i could make one other point with regard to that you know the gaddis uh, interpretation has to do with uh adams support uh retrospective support of andrew jackson's incursion into uh, west florida uh in 1818 and the uh adams or gaddis derived from that uh you know a justification for the uh, use of American power on the other side of the globe in Iraq—that's uh, obviously a great stretch. Uh, but it's also a, a misinterpretation of what Adams of what Adams said. He formally speaking, uh, the Spaniards were obligated to prevent attacks on. American territory, issuing from territory under their nominal control. And they had not done that. Uh, And so Adams, uh, who was at that time negotiating with Spain a treaty for the secession of Florida, as well as for the Oregon country, in exchange for which the United States gave up Texas, you know, it wasn't, didn't want to concede to the Spanish that the United States had uh, had acted inappropriately. But it is, you know, it is admittedly anomalous in Adams' career, that episode, because uh, most of the cabinet uh, opposed what Jackson had done. And uh, Adams was the lone man in the cabinet to support it. And he did it on the ground of international law, invoking Grotius Pufendorf, and Battelle. And as he later wrote, you know, Jackson preferred to rely on a forged order Uh, to justify it, and said, this is a mere matter between Jim Monroe and myself. Uh, 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 And he said, damn Grotius, damn Pupendorf, damn Mattel, all of whom were great authorities for Adams. So, I mean, it it is a curious episode, admittedly, but the idea that one can draw from it, this great justification for invading other countries uh, at will, Uh, it seems strikes me as absurd.
0: It sounds like you're saying that uh, maybe the view we often have in the popular imagination of Joe and Quincy Adams is uh, a little bit more complicated uh, than, you know, we may first realize. Uh, You write in the book that uh, despite Adams' reputation As America's greatest expansionist, for Adams the principle of expansion was always subordinated to the principles of union and liberty. Uh, So I want to talk a little bit about uh, you know the different interpretations of Adams in in relation to today. So I know a lot of people uh, that listen to this show that are kind of on the left end of the political spectrum, uh, and you know they're not as big of a fan of Adams. They view him as. Uh, just being an expansionist and nothing more. What do you think people on that end of the political spectrum uh, could learn uh, from John Quincy Adams?
1: Well, I, uh, you know, in the second part of the book, I go through a kind of political catechism drawn from the writings of Adams as others among the founders of the Republic that I think, hold forth very precious lessons uh, with men. I enumerate six of those regarding power, law, independence, peace, liberty, and union, and then elaborate those in relation to today. I don't know if you want to get into that now. Um, I, I I will say that, uh, yeah, it does seem to me that Adams... Uh, devotion to expansion, and he was particularly in the 1810s, very intent on restricting British claims to North America, uh, you know, which is a crucial thing to remember in understanding what's driving him. Uh, But in the 1820s, 1830s, uh, I think expansion for him is regulated by those other two Considerations that I mentioned that is, that expansion not threaten the Union, and above all, that it not be threatened, that it not threaten liberty. So, hence, he saw the annexation of Texas as a a scheme to uh, uh, advance the slave power, and he was dead set against that. And I don't think there was any time that he would have accepted the annexation of Texas under a slave holding constitution. That is, Insofar as he wanted to purchase Texas of Mexico, and his administration did uh, make offers to that effect, it was with the understanding that Mexico itself was moving towards emancipation such that if Texas were to come in, it would have come in with that understanding under Mexican law, forbidding slavery. Uh, So... uh, I mean, you can call that American expansion across the continent imperialism, if you wish. Obviously, it was to the disadvantage of the native peoples. Um, But uh, Adams, you know, did have a set of restraining factors in his thought about expansion that I think were demonstrably important to him. So then, could we could we talk about that catechism a bit because that really does speak to the? Did did you mean the uh, the six lessons from the founding? Yeah,
0: yeah. uh, So power, law, independence, peace, liberty, and union. Uh, I don't know
1: that there's a lot to unpack there. um, Makes up a number of the chapters. Okay, well, let me just kind of read my summation of the catechism, if I could, because uh, it. It does kind of express my basic uh, ideas uh, in in brief compass. So I say that as a condition of ordered liberty, power must be subject to restraint in its exercise, and any condition of unbounded power is an evil in itself. Law is the vital method for the use and constraint of power, and observing the precepts of the law of nature and nations is the best policy." National independence for us and for others is the key building block of a peaceful international order, as it is founded on the equality of nations and creates the basis for reciprocity and mutual advantage among disparate peoples. Independence can only be preserved through union, that is, through international association and respect for law, and both together promote a state of peace, the fundamental formula for the success of liberty. Now, yeah. Yeah. All of those things can be unpacked at some length. I've already spoken a bit about uh, power and the need for checks and balances upon the exercise of political power. Uh, let me say a few words about national independence. Uh, I think that that uh, is one of the central misunderstandings of what liberalism you know, meant. And it's related also to what they meant by the law of nature and of nations. So just as individuals were obligated to respect the rights of others and to not transgress upon their persons and property, so nations had a similar claim to independence. So when we speak of the equality of nations, just as the equality of individuals, the proposition is that each of those uh, have certain fundamental rights that others are not to infringe. And the uh, um, that whole enterprise of the United States to overturn tyranny in the world is a violation of rights of national independence. Those inherit in the people of a given territory. They're not something that outsiders can maintain. And uh, the idea that we have a right to, you know, invade another country, as we did with Iraq, with the idea of giving them this great gift of freedom and democracy, uh, would have been thought by all of these earlier thinking thinkers as a fundamental violation of those rights of national independence that inherit them. Now, it's true that uh, many people living under tyranny or in a bad way, but it's not for us to make the choice as to whether they should suffer all of the slings and arrows of radical insecurity that follows from the overthrow of an established government. That's not our choice to make. They have to make that uh, if they wish. And uh, I think that demonstrably in the case of Iraq, you know, what we did was reduce that country to a kind of state of nature Uh, requiring the establishment of new institutions, which, in fact, we couldn't really put into place. You know, we unleashed this gigantic war, a civil war, that has just brought incredible suffering and insecurity to those peoples. And as I say, we had no right to do that. They have a right of revolution themselves. We don't have the right to do that for them. That's that's the traditional teaching, and I think that our experience totally bears that out.
0: Yeah, I just want to add to that, and it, it doesn't really just stop at, uh, you, you know, Iraq, does it? I mean, we, we can look at instances <laughs> like, uh, you know, Libya and the overthrow of Gaddafi and the, the Western support for that. I mean, Gaddafi may have been uh, a dictator, but, you know, what, what has replaced Gaddafi is not uh, necessarily uh, some great outcome that we, we – could all be proud of either.
1: Well, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> I mean, what replaced him was uh, was a total disaster. I mean, it basically has been the destruction of that country. And, uh, you know, that's ironic, too, in the case of Gaddafi, because, yeah, he did some bad things in the uh, 1980s, blew up an airliner. and uh, But he was also moving towards a much more enlightened policy, and uh More you know, women were I, going to university, getting educations, things of that yeah, nature. And he invited all these western intellectuals to come talk to him. He he sponsored a United States of Africa. Um, uh, you know, there were some constructive elements in, in Libya's policy under the later Gaddafi. And uh, you know, the idea that we should have overthrown him and made it our business to uh to intervene in a civil war. Uh, well, of course we had no idea what would replace that and went in with uh, a total lack of understanding of what was likely to replace it. And what replaced it was this you know, unending tribal conflict that has brought untold woe to the people of that country. So I think the Libyan experience as with the Syrian experience underlies the sheer foolhardiness of of this idea that we have a right to overthrow existing governments. That's, that's the most serious thing in the world that you can do, because the whole nature of that, as I say, is to throw those people into a state of nature, a civil war, which is the worst of all human conditions. And, uh, We've been responsible for doing that in a lot of different places. And I think it's a reckless and inhumane policy that's in violation of this fundamental law uh, that was instantiated in the UN Charter and also recognized by these 18th century figures who uh, imbibed the law of nature and of nations.
0: So just to play devil's advocate for a second here, you know, we have figures like, uh, say, uh, the diplomat Samantha Power that will say, you know, it's the United States's duty uh, to, uh, you know, help other countries that are facing, you know, dictatorships or, you know, things like genocides. And I think people look at things like Darfur, incidents like Rwanda and say, well, yeah, the U.S. needs to be involved. Why shouldn't we? If we have the capabilities to be, uh, we can stop atrocities from happening. Uh How do you sort of respond to that? And I I know part of that response would be, well, sometimes we create our own atrocities. But just how do you respond to the moral arguments that people like power uh, make when it comes to U.S. foreign policy?
1: Well, I would say that, uh, you know, it's understandable why people should feel, in principle, a responsibility to protect. And there are some circumstances, uh, for example, when people are living in a kind of total anarchy, where one can make a presumptive case for intervention, so long as it follows, uh, you know, legal procedures. That is, so long as it's authorized by the Security Council. No, I think the overall record of the Security Council. Uh, uh, which is subject to a Chinese and a Russian veto over the last 30 years, you know, has been reasonably good. They haven't prohibited all interventions. And the United Nations has peacekeeping forces in a lot of different places. But uh, if, you know, your, your point that, you know, we end up committing atrocities uh in this ostensible mission to prevent atrocities I think is borne out by the record and uh, the the, the, uh, the United States does not have a right to make those unilateral determinations of when to intervene in these countries and I I think that there's just inherent limits to the ability to affect a good outcome uh, in doing so. I mean please tell me where where we have, Uh, where our interventions have led to this marvelously good outcome. I mean, South Sudan would be a classic example of that. You know, we thought we could intervene, carve off a separate state in South Sudan, and then it descended into total anarchy. No one even talks about that. Um, But there are just inherent limitations to foreigners Uh, armed with destructive weapons to go into another territory and impose order. I mean, it's just antithetical to the traditions of independence that people have and and inevitably incurs uh, massive resistance. And uh, so, you know, in principle, one could... I I acknowledge that there are are bases for uh, recognizing, uh, you know, some obligation of a responsibility to protect. But you also have to look at, you know, the good reasons for insisting upon multilateralism. You know, good reasons for opposing that notion by any individual country. Good reasons for suspecting uh, the commitment over the long term to do uh, to commit the resources that are required. Good reasons to just doubt the overall capability of you know 19-year-old American soldiers to become you know the, uh, the governing power in a given country. I mean, they just inevitably don't have the knowledge, wisdom, cultural understanding. Uh, that is required for that. So, you know, look at Afghanistan. I mean, how, how do these things end? Now, we, we, we undertook a 20-year war in Afghanistan, and there was all sorts of talk about how all of this we're doing for the Afghan people, and aren't we great? And we're giving them this greatest gift. And then we lose, get kicked out, Uh, after having been lied to repeatedly by the U.S. military with regard to the efficacy of what they were doing. And what's the response now? Well, let them starve. Put them under sanctions. Who cares? You know, doesn't matter. Uh, That's the kind of irresponsibility that I think is kind of inevitably associated with with these sorts of enterprises. And uh, so I think the record... uh, I'd put it this way. While in in principle, one can can make a case for that, in practice, uh, we've learned a lot about the limitations of that policy. And I think the traditional rule that the people on the spot have to fight it out and that their resolution should be respected and recognized is, is the better rule. I think experience bears that out.
0: So I also have to ask, how do you respond when, I, I know there's going to be a few listeners uh, that will say, oh, it sounds like uh, David Hendrickson is uh, supporting a form of isolationism. What, what I mean, a lot of my guests like Kelly Vlahos have uh, gotten that label slung at them. How do you respond to people that throughout the sort of uh, Oh, these are just isolationists—the uh, the people that are calling for foreign policy restraint.
1: Well, it reminds me of what Walter Lippmann said during the American War. If the alternative is what the globalists offer, then yeah, I'm an isolationist. I mean, I I've changed in that regard. I I, I must say, and I am veering closer to the traditional understanding that was associated with that term isolationism, which meant, in the past, a refusal to enter into entangling alliances and the avoidance of foreign wars. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, I was a big partisan of NATO, but the NATO that existed during the Cold War, I think, was a force for stability, whereas the NATO that's existed in the post-Cold co- War period has, you know, A, been a platform for intervention in the greater Middle East, and B, made it its business to intrude deeply into the Russian sphere of influence. And we see the outcome of that great force for civility. We have this awful war in Ukraine that I think could easily have been avoided had the United States pursued a different policy towards Russia and Ukraine. Let me put the point more broadly with respect to isolationism. I mean, the, the, peop, the, the partisans of the national security establishments say that we're doing all of this in the world, our advanced policy on the frontiers of Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, et al., on behalf of national security. But the plain fact of the matter is, is that we are skirting very close to a Third World War. Uh, I mean, when we undertook all of these ambitions in the 1990s, You know, no one had the idea that it was going to lead to some great conflagration. Uh, It was with the assurance that the United States would be, you know, militarily superior. And uh, the truth is, is that we implanted ourselves in the midst of areas that are intrinsically part of the vital interest of these other states and for which they are willing to go to war. Now... I'm not predicting that outcome, but it has become much more likely. And I think a war with those other great powers would be inherently destructive to American security. I I don't think that Americans begin to have an appreciation of how vulnerable we are in terms of just a whole range of different areas. I mean, bio warfare, cyber warfare, the destruction of infrastructure. Uh, the shutdown of trade. I mean, across the board, the distinguishing factor of the modern world is a kind of mutual interdependence that can be extremely malign if states uh, find themselves in mortal conflict. And with nuclear weapons, of course, that's just the icing on the cake and uh, the epitome of all of those dangers. And... uh, It is a fundamental responsibility, both for American security and world order, to uh, mitigate those dangers, and I think we're bringing them on. Now, you know, as I say, uh, I don't want the United States to be a force for instability in the world, and so, you know, breaking away from many of these alliances would, uh, you know, is something that... Uh, is, is a kind of hard advice to take. Yet, as I say, given what they have become, given the understanding that is attached to them, that, you know, the commitment that Japanese security requires uh, entrenching ourselves on Taiwan and risking war with China, or the commitment to the security of Europe requires uh, liberating Crimea and denying the rush, right of Russians there to exercise their right of self-determination, well, I mean, the temptation is to give the whole thing up. And, uh, you know, that whole relationship with Europe has, I think, been turned on its head over the last 30 years from what it was back in the days of the Cold War. I mean, it wasn't, you know, this disparity that the United States would undertake all of the expenditures, uh, you know, bear all the burdens. Uh, that was supposed to go away over time. Well, it's actually been enhanced. Uh, and uh, the pretensions, ambitions of the alliance, rather than be- being defensive, have have transmogrified themselves into something that's much more offensive, dedicated to revolution, as in 2014 with the uh, Maidan revolution, which brought Ukrainian extremists to power and made inevitable a civil war. So, given all of that, uh, yeah, uh, (laughs) I'm not afraid of that isolationist label. You know, one further point about that, what are we doing now in terms of internationalism? Well, we're creating this gigantic uh, social credit system for the entire world, such that you know, all the nations of the world can only engage in trade at the sufferance of the United States. And if they if they trade with, with states that we've declared to be enemies, well, they're to be, uh, you know, sanctioned, expropriated. Uh, I mean, that's walling ourselves off from the world. That's not engaging with it. Uh, and I think that the neoconservative project which I would call an imperial project, uh, you know, does does itself represent a kind of isolationism in the sense that it it makes American primacy, American dictates, uh, American wishes, the be-all and end-all, and is increasingly uh, contemptuous toward the rights and interests of other states. Above all, in, throughout the entirety of the global South, who I think have come to greatly resent, uh, you know, these missions from the United States telling them who they can trade with and uh, you know threatening them uh, with uh, expropriations at every turn if they defy American policy.
0: So, since we mentioned uh, the spheres of influence uh, sort of argument. Um, you know, a lot of people, uh, or, or I know people that will say, well, you know, if we buy into this idea that there are just spheres of influence, you know, it means that a country like Ukraine just sort of has to deal with, you know, Russia breathing down its neck. And, you know, on the flip side of that it would probably mean that uh, certain Latin American countries uh, sort of have to deal with uh, the U.S. breathing down its neck. And I guess uh, people take moral issue with that. So how do you sort of respond to that criticism of the sort of realist spheres of influence approach?
1: Well, there is a distinction between how we should act and uh, treat other states above all in our neighborhood and the willingness to use force to ensure that other states live up to a certain code of conduct. Now, in the, case of, of, in the case of Russia and Ukraine, um, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and, of an in, and then the concomitant creation of an independent Ukraine, you know, left some 12 to 13 Russians in Ukraine, in a nation of what at that time was 45 million. So let's say it was about a third quarter to a third. And, uh, you know, that circumstance in order to, if it was going to allow for a peaceful evolution, had to accommodate the rights and interests of those different peoples. And, uh, you know, if you go back and look at the kind of attitude that existed among the uh, The Bush administration, the first Bush administration, you know, when Bush went to Kiev and warned of suicidal nationalism, there was an understanding that there could be a really important American role that could be played in encouraging the parties towards mutual reconciliation, and making any kind of American support for them dependent upon their acceptance of that principle of mutual reconciliation. That was the basis on which the Ukrainian state was established, and all the first leaders of that state said that there was to be no prejudice against the Russian speakers and call them the Russian phones. We totally repudiated that policy in the course of the last decade. As I say, with the Maidan revolution of 2014, you know, that violated a fundamental command of the Ukrainian constitution. The guy had been elected, Yanukovych. he gotten 90% of the vote in Crimea, 80% of the vote in the Donbass. And, uh, you know, when the Ukrainians uh, overthrew him in a revolution supported by the United States they surrendered their claim to the other people uh, to rule over them. I mean, that put them in a state of nature. The other people had a right to, uh, uh, to to revolt and form their own state if they wished. Now, it's true they got support from Russia in that enterprise, but on the other hand, the people in the west of Ukraine got support from the United States in the west in their enterprise. I regard that as really the you know, kind of the point of no return with regard to this conflict. And uh, it, you know, to my mind, it shows that the uh, a kind of gross irresponsibility in, you know, the proper uh, management of the empire. If you're going to have an empire, you should do it in an even-handed fashion. We didn't do that. Uh, you know, the EU and its approach to the Russians didn't do that. It said, uh, we don't think the Russians have any kind of role in discussions of the kind of economic relations that should exist between Ukraine and the rest. So, you know, as I say, in the execution of our policy, I think we've been greatly deficient in terms of spheres of influence. Well, in principle, uh, you know, that's just a fact of nature. And if you, if 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 you don't want to recognize that other great states hold certain things to be vital interests, then you should just go to war. But I would say to all those people on the left who who think that, oh, any recognition of spheres of influence is a bad thing, uh, uh, okay, fine. Accept then the inevitability of war. Forget about concerted efforts to deal with the climate. Forget about any kind of global collaboration on anything. Look forward, on the contrary, to unlimited competition with regard to, you know, the destruction of infrastructure, bio warfare, uh, you name it. Anything becomes on the table once you introduce that condition of unlimited rivalry among the great powers, and uh, you know, it's just incredible to me that all of these people who have been talking about, oh, all of the global challenges that we face should make, you know, the denial of self-determination to the people in Crimea and the Donbass, the be-all and end-all of our responsibilities for humanity. It's absurd, but that's where we are. That enterprise has now displaced You know, every other enterprise for global meliorism. And, um, you know, I think it's a huge mistake on our part. And we're not out of it. I mean, in other words, we're in the first year, beginning the second year of what is likely a further descent into unlimited great power competition. You mean with regards to the Russian invasion? With regard to the Russian invasion, with regard to the worsening of our relations with China, which arise in part out of the, out of that same issue, uh, because that will mean the extension of sanctions to China insofar as they lend any kind of support to Russia. Therefore, you know, we look, you know, it, it, it sort of spreads like this miasma to affect every issue of international relations. Uh, you know, in order to enforce the sanctions, you've got to sanction, you know, every nation of the global South. Uh, so, yeah, I see a further total collapse of arms control. That's gone. Uh, the uh, All of those things that were associated with the liberal internationalist project for much of the 20th century of which arms control was one. I mean, earn the crapper now. And I, you know, they're basically irretrievable. So we've sacrificed a lot on behalf of this idea that oh, spheres of influence are a terrible thing.
0: Yeah, I just had maybe one or two more questions. So with regards to Ukraine, I mean, it's a difficult topic for me to talk about because I have my biases. I'm, um, I, I have uh, uh, ancestors that that came from Ukraine, so. I have some biases there, uh, but how would you, I guess, what would you say uh, to people when it comes to a really um, emotionally fueled topic of Ukraine? uh, What would you say that your approach is to it? Uh, How do you think we should be thinking about it um, in terms of both how we look at Ukraine and how we look at Russia with regards to this conflict and the U.S., uh, the role it needs to play in regards to this, if any?
1: Well, that question kind of reminds me of the question that uh, I got repeatedly in 2004 and 2005. You know, like, what would you do now? And, uh, you know, at that time, I used to tell the old joke about the guy who wanted to you know, get directions to Grand Central Station. Gabby looks at him and says, you know, I, I wouldn't start from here. Uh, and You kind of want to go back to the previous mistakes that that helped bring about the war. Uh, You know, Putin uh, did a dumb thing. I wouldn't call it a criminal thing as such. I mean, he has some kind of legal case. And I think what he was after and about has been wildly misinterpreted misinterpreted in the West. I don't think he's about the conquest of Ukraine. Russian policy is fundamentally about the protection of the Russia-aligned people in the South and East of Ukraine and in Crimea. That's the bottom line. And he said that repeatedly. Uh, You know, he said in his speech of uh, mid-2021 that, While saying that the Russians and the Ukrainians were part of one people, he also said, you know, events change. Sometimes people change their mind and they want to go their separate way and said, you know, how should one deal with them? And he said, well, with respect, acknowledging that the Ukrainians have a right to their own independent nationality and state. What he said they don't have a right to is to take out of the Soviet Union the territories that were created for them by Soviet policy, whether that's the territories annexed to Ukraine in the West uh, by Stalin in 1940-41, whether it's Crimea given to Ukraine by Khrushchev in 1954, or the boundaries that the Bolsheviks originally drew that formed part of the Federation of Socialist States that the USSR became. So essentially that's a claim to self-determination of the uh of of those Russian speakers. How large is that number now? Well, I don't know. It's some kind of number. I think that the people who live in Crimea want association with Russia. Uh, I think a very considerable number of people in the Donbass want that.
0: I do have uh, to admit, uh, based on the news reports I've seen, uh, where we have reporters going to Uh, Crimea now, it does seem like when they interview people on the streets, a lot of these people in Crimea are saying we're on the Russian side of things. Hey, JG here. Just a quick edit. To add some context here, I'm specifically talking about the report by NBC correspondent Kier Simmons from last week. And based on the people in the streets that he interviewed, it did seem like there was some support within Crimea for Russia and Putin. Now, of course, there's a lot of other things going on. I mean, we could talk about the the Tartar population in Crimea and their feelings about Russia, et cetera, et cetera. But unfortunately, there wasn't enough time to dissect the report in this episode. And this portion of the conversation was rather impromptu. Just wanted to add that in there to provide clarity.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there have been 10 polls taken since 2014 attesting to that. And uh, I mean, look, let me put it this way. I think that in looking towards a settlement, the basic principle of the settlement should be that the least number of people are governed by people uh, who hate them or whom they hate. And obviously, this conflict, you know, has has reached the point where the people on the Russian side and the people on the Ukrainian side shouldn't can't live together in the same state because to, to be affiliated to be a minority in one of those entities is inevitably to be persecuted. I mean the Ukrainians are now you know burning all the Russian books and uh <laughs> the the they need a divorce. Right. now I was gonna this, say it seems like that's
0: going on um with uh, both Russians and Ukrainians. I'm noticing that uh, book burnings for both sides. Uh, yeah I mean it's
1: you know but look the, in principle that conflict is not terribly different from the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians or Armenians and Azerbaijanis or Indian Pakistan over Kashmir. I mean, sometimes people who've lived in proximity to one another over a long period of time, you know, develop these awful enmities. And uh, and I think the, 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 the logical solution, which I think has roots in international law, is to look towards a settlement in which, uh, you know, people are not ruled by those who intend to oppress them. So I don't think, uh, you know, this constant uh, iteration of Crimea is Ukraine and that it should be our objective to drive the Russians out of Ukraine uh, is a just uh, objective. I mean, I'm sure it's an imprudent objective, but I don't think it's just because it would violate the rights of self-determination. As I said, those rights of self-determination came into play by virtue of that Maidan revolution in 2014. because Uh, the people who seized the power no longer had the right to claim or to to deny to others in that state the right of revolution. And I think that they exercised that. As I say, they did it with the help of the Russians, but the Westerners did it with the help, the implied future support of the Western powers as well. Anyway, that's my principle of settlement. You know, the least number of people be governed by my people who hate them, I think that probably is, you know, means lines that are, you know, not that different from those which exist today on the map. I, I would support such a settlement today. I think that that's extremely unlikely. I think we're going to have to play this script out to the bitter end. But I also think that the bitter end is something that is going to, you know, mean another 100, 200, 300,000 deaths and will not result in an outcome materially different from that which I've described. Uh, You you know, that's not, in my view, fundamentally a question of will. I think it's increasingly become a question of capacity. Now, those two things are intimately related to one another, but I think the Russians are much better prepared for this war than the West is, and uh, one of the things the war has revealed is that, you know, we didn't really pay much attention to the requirements of a long war. Uh, you know, we can manufacture fifteen thousand artillery shells a month in the United States. Uh, well, you know, that amounts to uh, less than a day's expenditure of of artillery by the Russians. And uh, yeah, there are plans to increase that, but, you know, those don't take place for another two years. So my sense from the very beginning is that whatever the United States could throw at the Russians in Ukraine, uh, the Russians have an answer for. And uh, that might mean further mobilization on the part of Russia. I think Putin's prepared to do that. And I think the Russian people would bear with it uh, if necessary. And... uh, the the so the I just don't see how unless we you know start using nuclear weapons and go to the third world war I don't see how the West is going to you know drive Ukrainians away so we just have you know the likelihood is that a year from now we'll be looking at a much higher toll of, of people killed uh, but not a position militarily. That's more advantageous to the West. That's my view of it. I may be wrong, of course. It's extremely difficult to know what's going on. Uh, There's such a fog surrounding basic questions of you know the number of casualties that each side has suffered. Uh, You know, have, have the Ukrainians lost twice as many men as the Russians, or have the Russians lost twice as many men as the Ukrainians? Well, you have reputable figures. Uh, saying, uh, you know, both those things. Uh, Which is correct is really the fundamental question because it bears upon the capacity of each state to sustain this thing. I don't know the answer for that. Uh, I think that one must assume that given this huge disparity in rates of fire uh, of artillery shells, you know, anywhere from three, four, five to one, sometimes even ten to one in some theaters. Argues for a much higher Ukrainian toll than has been admitted in in Western commentary. But having said that, uh, you know the fog of war envelops everything, and it's very difficult to make that determination. Anyway, Russia is three times as large, and it has um, it has. Resources enabling it to continue the conflict. Uh, We don't see it staying power because uh, we've imputed to Putin uh, a set of objectives that uh, are, you know, would seem like the conquest of the world, which (laughs) seem antithetical to the interests and dispositions of the Russian people. But if you understand those objectives in a more limited sense, Basically, is the protection of Russians in the south and east. Uh, then I think that they will be able to sustain that uh, support. Anyway, it's all it's all kind of academic now. I, we're committed. There's no prospect of any kind of turning away. I think on either side. Uh, so inevitably, we're going to have to see what the God of battles uh, determines. Uh, with regard to kind of who has the upper upper hand over the next six months. And uh, I don't think that the Ukrainians are capable of, you know, their vaunted great offensive to sever Crimea or to sever the land bridge to Crimea, which they're contemplating. I think that that will fail. I think that the Russians have sufficient resources to prevent that. But as I say, you know, all of the all of the crucial data from which one might be able to make an informed judgment about that, you know, which basically consists of how many casualties each side have suffered on the one hand, and on the other hand, what the underlying logistical capability in terms of ammunition and supplies and all of that is. Most of it's secret. We can only make educated guesses. Uh, Yeah, that makes it uh, that makes it a tough thing to 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 figure. But you know, just one last point in that regard, I do think that the uh, Russian military doctrine, with its emphasis on artillery, and this has turned out to be an artillery war, uh, logically leads to the idea that it would have made far more preparations for that kind of war than the United States. You know, we got used for 30 years to fighting a certain type of war which didn't require big artillery reserves, which which assumed American aerial superiority, which was directed against third-class military opponents. And uh now that we're involved in a in a real fight of you know, kind of World War I dimensions, we find we don't have the manufacturing base to sustain that sort of thing. And uh You know, I think increasingly what that's going to lead to is enormous increases in the American defense budget. You know, they've been very coy about that. But, you know, really the logic of this new uh, pre-World War III situation that we're getting into, where you have demands not only against Russia, but also against China, Iran, back on the table because we withdrew from the JCPOA. Uh you know, Lindsey Graham talking about invading Mexico. <laughs> I mean, you know, the 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 demands of the national security state are going to increase exponentially. And and as I say at uh at no increase in American security, rather the contrary. There were just two more things I wanted to mention real briefly
0: here. Uh, One is that when when we were talking about internationalism and sort of the uh, internationalism by way of the gun uh, sort of deals that we've had in the past, like say, uh, you know, we have to go in and save Afghanistan uh, or we have to save Iraq. Um, It's interesting. I was speaking recently to a former FBI agent, uh, Mark Rossini, who was the uh, FBI sort of point man within the CIA's Bin Laden unit. And he was saying to me, you know, the big problem with the war on terror, and I have many problems with the war on terror myself, because I don't know how you can fight an abstraction. But from his point of view, he said, you know, the war on terror is such a strange war because you can't really win a war on terror one. And also you can't really, uh, win a war like that with guns. You know, you're not going to defeat terrorism, uh, with guns. Uh, and it got me to thinking, do you think there's, uh, different ways that we can be involved as a country with the world, with the international community, uh, that still are a form of engagement with the world, but they don't involve necessarily military engagement? Like, is there another form
1: of internationalism we could be involved in? Well, that was kind of my main pitch in uh, in this book I wrote in 2018, Republican Peril. It called for a new internationalism. And by that I meant that the United States, you know, should deeply engage with other nations in the world in cooperative ventures to address the challenges of climate change, of pandemics, you know, of uh, of terrorism, of um, of the the state of the oceans. I mean, there's a whole series of global goods that could use. Uh, international cooperation and where there's a standing requirement for that. Now, I guess my, uh, my opinion of that has shifted a bit since that time in that, as I was saying earlier, what I'm impressed by now is not so much the positive benefits that global cooperation can bring about, but the need to avoid a situation in which the nations increasingly use their mutual interdependencies against one another, creating, you know, various malign outcomes. And uh, I, I, I just think there's enormous capacity in today's world for the nations to do harm for one another across a whole series of domains. And once you cross the threshold into war or quasi-war, that begins to loom up as a very awful danger. Now, that's not to say that that positive agenda isn't important. And of course, there's a whole series of global issues in which the United States should take a responsible role and try to affect cooperation. Uh, But I I think that all of that's been eclipsed by... uh, you know, today's environment. Let me just give you one example in terms of climate change. You know, okay, the Europeans said they weren't going to buy any more Russian gas. And, uh, and, you know, that's resulted in the situation where they've come to be incredibly reliant on LNG. Well, what's the result of that? Well, Pakistan has given up any kind of participation in the LNG market. They've been priced out of it. What are they doing now? Well, they're burning coal, and they're going to be burning more coal. And the same choice has been made by Indonesia, and I think a number of other nations in the global south. So we've considered a lot of these policies purely with regard to what's happening in North America or what's happening in Europe. But in fact, something like climate change is inherently global, and you have to look at the overall picture to get a sense of the rationality of some of the measures that have been undertaken. I think that's just one instance in which, you know, the consequences of these sanctions are going to lead to outcomes which are threatening to the kind of hopes that existed uh, in the last generation from liberal internationalists. Uh, with respect to you know various projects of global m- meliorism, none of those are possible if you have unlimited great power rivalry. That will doom them all.
0: And the very last thing I want to touch upon, and I apologize for keeping you over time, but um, you know, just I know we talk a lot about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, it's not necessarily my area of expertise, so that's why I didn't really uh, try to debate or necessarily give all my views on it, but. Um, even getting beyond the question of uh, Russia and Ukraine right now, I, I think we're having to address a very real issue of uh, this idea of the international rules-based order and the liberal international order, uh, the the liberal world order, and the ways in which it, you know ultimately I think it's paradoxical uh, because we claim to be for these international rules-based system. And yet, we often support countries uh, with a bad track record um, on following those rules. So, for instance, Israel, when it comes to the occupied territories in Palestine, or uh, just a country like Saudi Arabia. Um, so, you know, what do you think the future is when it comes to the uh, just paradox of the international rules based order? Because it seems like uh, it's not always as rules based. <laughs> as it claims to be. And it also seems as if the global South is very attuned to that fact and not really uh, supportive of the West all the time because of that.
1: That whole expression, the rules-based order, is itself suspect. I mean, yeah, there's a rules-based order. It's the United Nations Charter. It's international law. That's what it is. And, uh, you know, the West has adopted this new expression for it that has this ambiguous relationship to the UN Charter and to international law. Why is that? Well, because we have violated it for the last 20 years. I mean, you think back to uh, Robert Kagan's book uh, in 2020, originally published in the title Power and Weakness, you know where he made this contrast between the Hobbesian world of that was out there in the larger world and the Kantian paradise in Europe. You know, the Kantian paradise was the world where you had to respect the rules. But the Hobbesian world, after Thomas Hobbes, was the one where, you know, there were no rules, where force and fraud would... Would uh, have the uh, the field of operation, and you know it's really striking that that was sort of the great ideological justification for the war on terror and all of the things that the Bush did, Bush administration did, and all of the doctrines that it asserted. And if there was one unifying premise of all of those new doctrines, it was that the UN Charter and its rules. For calling for the respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity were irrelevant to the new challenges that we face. So, yeah, the rest of the world, when it sees the United States, you know, all of a sudden invoking this in the case of Ukraine, naturally views it with a great deal of suspicion, as well they should. Now, I, uh, uh, Our relationship with Israel and the Saudis and all is very complicated. Look, there's a lot of tough customers and bad actors in the world. I'm sorry that's the case, but it happens to be the case. And there are very strict limits in terms of our ability to do that. I've, uh, you know, I've opposed Israeli policy towards the Palestinians for many years, but I must say, I'm more worried now about the prospect of an Israeli attack on Iran. I think that that would be far more prejudicial to American interest. And I've just practically given up in terms of the ability of uh, of non-Jews to have a voice on that issue in the United States. I'd like the Jewish community to step up and, uh, and hold Netanyahu's feet to the fire, because if the non-Jewish community does it. They're invariably assailed with charges of anti-Semitism. So, all right, you have a control over this area of policy. Speak up. Uh, with regard to the Saudis, too, I just don't see. You know, uh, there are just limits to our ability to to deal with these refractory characters. I mean, I, you know, I thought that the U.S. support for their war in war in Yemen was a total scandal and uh, wanted to withdraw from that. Yet at the same time, you know, it would be hazardous to adopt a totally hostile policy to the Saudis. I think that that would drive them into the arms of the Russians and the Chinese. And I, you know, they do hold a very pivotal role in the world oil market. So I'm not quite sure what to say about, you know, how I would approach that. Again, it's one of the areas where, American policy seems kind of set in stone because of the requirements of the military industrial complex. I mean, there's no way to, you know, to break that relationship because the Saudis you know, are such a huge buyer of American arms. And uh, any attempt to exercise pressure on them ultimately, you know, meets that iron reality uh, that this, the military establishment depends on them.
0: I just wanted to add to that. I I wasn't even mentioning uh, the Israel US or US Saudi relationship. Um, j- just to reference them, I I guess I'm more pointing towards the fact that I think a lot of people want to believe that we live in this uh, sort of post nation state order, but you know the the reality, whether we really like it or not, is that we still live in a world of nation states and the type of geopolitics we had in the past century. Uh, And I think that's something we just have to sort of recognize, even if we would like to see uh, a different world in the future.
1: Yes. Well, I agree with that. And, uh, you know, I think that one of the prerequisites for international peace is a willingness to respect the principle of non-intervention. That is, there are just limits to the degree to which one can use coercion to make other states in the world uh, shape up. And uh, those policies just don't work. They exacerbate international intention, and they often prohibit cooperation on other matters where you know, it's possible to make a difference. So that seems very antithetical to the prevailing American ethos, whether on the right or the left, where we assume this kind of God-given right to dictate to other nations. And I mean, one understands the basis for a lot of those interventions, but uh, is deriving from uh, considerations of, of, of morality or proper treatment towards you know various others. But the record of success attached to such intervention, I think, should lead people to reconsider that. And, you know, the old lesson, something that John Quincy Adams, I think, would agree with, is that, you know, you need to focus on yourself at home, improving those things over which, you know, you can have some influence. And That's the proper object of, uh, you know, benevolence and humanitarianism in politics, if you go beyond that and try to dictate to the entire world, uh, you're on a fool's errand. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because in a way, um, trying
0: to force uh, the sort of um, American style liberalism on the whole world it ends up being very illiberal. <laughs> One of the
1: paradoxes. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And of course, what we mean by American liberalism has, you know, undergone this total transformation over the last 20 years. And uh, now it's pride flags on all the American embassies. And it wasn't that 20 years ago. And uh, so I think the world is is baffled by that and and, and resents it. And, uh, you know, quiet diplomacy, that sort of thing, I think, is far more effective uh, for securing the rights of threatened peoples than, than uh, kind of shoving it down their throat. Uh, that, that You just get resistance that way.
0: Well, I want to thank you again, David C. Hendrickson, for coming on Parallax Views. And the book is Freedom, Independence, Peace, John Quincy Adams, and American Foreign Policy. Thank you again for coming on the show, David C. Hendrickson. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David C. Hendrickson, author of Freedom, Independence, Peace, John Quincy Adams, and American Foreign Policy. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Parallax Views and with that being said until next time you've been listening to Parallax Views with J.J. Michael to Parallax Views with J.J. Michael The way out is
1: not simply to say don't do it just to prohibit is nothing else if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all these new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon,
0: but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time,
1: new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever.
0: I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.
1: I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.